I had thought, well, the multiverse scientists are talking about it, but it can all be just a single universe. So I don't really have to deal with it. And then I realized, no, you know, there's actually good reason to think a multiverse might exist. So what do I do with that? Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. In today's episode, I'll talk with Dr. Jeff Zwink about, wait for it, the multiverse. The multiverse. No joke, I'm not kidding. We're really going to talk about the multiverse. And after that, we're going to have another edition of On My Bookshelf. Ah, but first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, or business from a distinctly Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's stay on the theme of the multiverse. Let's talk about the new movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania. Here today to discuss the new Ant-Man film is Aaron Earls. Aaron Earls is senior writer and editor of LifewayResearch.com and a freelance writer living outside of Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and four kids. He earned his MDiv and apologetics from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and you can read some of his pop culture writings here on our blog, cfc.scbts.edu. Aaron, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for having me. So you've seen the new Ant-Man film, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Did I say that right? It feels like a made-up word. It is a made-up word, but it's comic books. What can you do? <laughs> okay. What's the movie about? And did you like it? It's the third Ant-Man movie, uh, and it begins kind of what Marvel is calling their phase five. And it establishes King the Conqueror, who's the overarching threat for all the Marvel superheroes for the next stretch of movies. Played by Jonathan Majors, King is kind of a powerful time traveler from the future with lots of different variants of himself spread across different timelines. It it gets confusing, and if that sounds confusing, just watch the movie. But he, Jonathan Majors, King, was the highlight of Quantumania, which may bode well for the future of Marvel movies. But he almost overwhelms this film as he seems almost too big for it, which may seem appropriate for an Ant-Man movie. But Quantumania is fine, and that's kind of the problem. Like, it fits with a lot of the other Ant-Man movies. Like, it's a, you know, the other Ant-Man movies were kind of good, lighthearted, enjoyable heist movies. But they wanted to do something more with Quantumania. They wanted to kind of increase the stakes and go higher. So why they put Kang in this movie. So there are higher highs here than the previous Ant-Man movies. There are also lower lows. And the tone doesn't seem kind of consistent with who Ant-Man has been across uh, the, the previous MCU. And so it seems almost like Marvel is trying to create what I've called a required viewing filler episode. So if you watch TV for long, you know, filler episodes are those that like, they can be a fun side story, but they're not really relevant to the, the main story of the season. You may enjoy that, may have your favorite character, but you don't have to see that episode to know what the grand story is for the season. But Marvel doesn't want you to skip this movie. They, they want everybody to watch as much as they can get and make as much money of all their movies as they possibly can. But Ant-Man doesn't kind of work in that way. So they kind of put Kang in this situation to draw people in. So it's both this filler episode character, but with this villain introducing him to the, the grand narrative of the whole story. So they're trying to do both those things at the same time. On Rotten Tomatoes kind of aggregate score, it's one of the worst reviewed Marvel movies ever. I don't think it's one of the worst ones, but it's in the middle, which is you know problematic if this is kind of kicking off your grand next storytelling kind of thing. So you're still, I would say, if you 
enjoy comic movies, if you've watched all the Marvel movies, if you you kind of enjoy that type of storytelling, you'll, you'll probably appreciate this and enjoy it. If you only kind of come in for the big events, the big stories, and, and you check out most of the time, this may be one you can skip or, you know, you can read about it on Wikipedia or, you know, wait till it comes out on Disney Plus and watch it there. So it seems like Aaron Earls is a little lukewarm on this new Ant-Man film. What what themes are consistent with our faith in this movie? And what themes did you see that are maybe inconsistent with things we believe? I think building off of kind of what Ant-Man has traditionally been in, in the previous two films, a movie a lot about family and just the importance of family, the importance of Scott Lang, the Ant-Man, you know, really valuing his relationship with his daughter and wanting to write himself and, and clean himself up and get better to to be the dad that his daughter needs for him. So families valued a good father shown to be sacrificial and loving to lead their children. And for her part, Cassie, his daughter, she encourages Scott to do more with his abilities and influence he's been given. Scott's kind of since the last, you know, big Avengers movie, and he was part of, you know, saving the world from this, you know, giant threat of Thanos. He spent his time writing books and doing podcasts and kind of living off of his past fame. And she's encouraging him to do more than that kind of revisits the, the the old Spider-Man adage, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And that kind of plays itself in this. And so Scott needs to be reminded to use the skills and abilities he has to serve others and seek to do, do good. Uh, we can see that as a kind of a, a good thing we can resonate with as well as Christians. For her part, Cassie has to gain wisdom that comes with age and experience. It's one thing to have the ability and opportunity to help. It's another to have the wisdom to know how to best use what you have to help. Uh, you know, her desires to serve and help others, and that's good, but sometimes it's not necessarily tempered with and filtered through wisdom, and it creates even more problems. And so I think as as Christians, we can resonate with the desire to, we see something wrong, to want to do something to to fix that. And that desire for justice is good, and it's a God-given desire. But if I respond and seek to solve every problem I see or hear with an individual, uh, we'll never make it. We won't meet all those things. And so I think that's why God places within the church I can't meet all the needs out there, but as a church body, if we all commit to work together using the skills, opportunities, passions that God's given us, we can meet those needs together. And so, of course, the heroes realize that at the climactic moment, they all come together to defeat the villain there. But there's also one kind of thing that I think runs through this that we may see as contrary. The film sets up this idea that you can do the wrong things if you have the right goal. You know, the ends justify the means kind of thing. Uh, Deception's okay because the motives are good. But all that undermines their struggle with Kang. Kang, you know, that's the bad guy. In his mind, his motivations are good, too. He's trying to do what he wants to do for a good goal in his own mind. But so so they have this conflict and just all centered on, well, if the good guy does it, it's okay. And the bad guy does it, that means it's bad. But that doesn't work for us, obviously, from a biblical worldview. There's a little bit of that perspective on morality that we would have to kind of look out for as we process Ant-Man and the Wasp and Quantumania. Very helpful, very wise. Anything else our listeners should know about this movie? It's a standard Marvel PG-13 fare. You kind of get what you get from most of these normal movies. You know, So there's brief language throughout. There's a kind of short discussion of extramarital affairs. Nothing explicit, but just kind of that's there. And, you know, just again, it's a comic book movie. So there's an exposed cartoonish backside. So if that, if that offends you, you don't want to see that. That's that's present there. But again, you this may be one that if you like Marvel movies, you enjoy it. If it's not your cup of tea on a normal basis, this is probably one you might want to skip. Very good. Aaron Earls with all the Ant-Man wisdom for today. Uh, Aaron, how can our listeners follow you in your work? I'm probably most active on Twitter and there I'm at Wardrobe Door, which is a C.S. Lewis illusion there. And also my website is wardrobedoor.com. 
The multiverse is all the rage in pop culture right now. Spider-Man has his Spider-Verse, Doctor Strange has his Multiverse of Madness, even Michael Keaton's Batman is set to return in an upcoming DC Comics film about, yes, the multiverse. But is the multiverse just the stuff of science fiction, or is there something to it? Well, we're delighted to have on the podcast today Dr. Jeff Zwerink. Dr. Zwerink is an astrophysicist and a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, Relevant to today's conversation, he's the author of a little book called Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? Dr. Zwerink, thank you so much for being with us today. I enjoy the time and always like talking about the multiverse. It's a fascinating <laughs> okay. topic. Well, before we hop into that, tell us a little bit about your story. How, how did you come to Christ and how did you become interested in studying science? So I have been interested in science from my youngest memories. In fact, one of the earliest memories I have was sitting at the top of the stairs in a duplex that we lived in. My dad and a colleague were giving a science demonstration to a group my older brother was involved in. And it's, uh, you know, put chemicals together and they make cool sounds and weird shapes and dip balls in liquid nitrogen, throw them on the wall and they shatter. And what was fascinating, I didn't realize it as a three-year-old, but later on, it's like science allows you to explain why all that happens. And so I've been interested in science for as long as I can remember. My parents were Christians. They taught me Christianity. I've never had any reason to doubt what they said. I've, I've investigated and found it to be true. I personally trusted Christ as my savior when I was in the fifth grade in an Awana program and have spent the last decades of my life studying what does it mean to be a Christian? How do I relate to God? What does he say? And, and those questions kind of come up because science points at how the universe works. Bible talks about how the universe works. And if God is who he says he is, my conviction is they ought to be saying the same thing when yeah. we understand. So yeah. that science-faith connection just naturally flows out of my interest in science and my, my passion for following Christ. Well, let's talk about the multiverse then. Is the multiverse just the stuff of science fiction, or is there evidence that it's real? For the longest time, it largely been science fiction. Uh, there had been ideas of a multiverse in one fashion or another floating around science. If you go back to the early 1900s, when we started discovering general relativity and found that it was true, the universe was expanding. One of the ideas was it expands and collapses and expands and collapses. Well, that's a multiverse. So there, there have been scientific versions of the multiverse around, but really until our current understanding of inflationary Big Bang cosmology, the multiverse really was kind of interesting idea, but really more science fiction. But the way inflation works if our understanding of it is correct, does produce a multiverse of some sort. And so it does have a lot more scientific grounding than a lot of people are comfortable with, including me when I first recognized the scientific grounding of it. So does this mean like that old episode of Star Trek where there's an alternate universe where, you know, Spock and Kirk are bad guys? Does that mean there's an alternate universe where, you know, you and I are mustache twirling villains? Like, what does this mean, the multiverse? What what are the, the ways that scientists seek to understand what this is? To talk about the multiverse, one of the things that I first had to realize is we had to define what a universe is hmm. before you can start talking about beyond the universe. And so the way I like to define a universe at least provides a well-defined way of doing it. And we can disagree if you want, but say, well, we live in a universe or the, the region that we can see at least has been around for 14 billion years. And we know that the speed of light is the fastest something can travel through space. So that allows me to ask the question, what is the furthest reach where light could get to the Earth? 
and it's a well-defined quantity. It's actually a very large volume of space. But nonetheless, you say, all right, the, the most distant reaches where light could get to the Earth, I'm going to define that as the universe, or mm. we'll call it the observable universe is a little bit better definition. And then I'm just going to define the multiverse as anything beyond that. Okay. Now, you can have, if I were to just instantaneously move to the edge of the observable universe, there could just be a whole lot more of the same stuff out there. I call that, you know, I, I adopt uh, Max Tegmark's terminology. You call that a level one multiverse. It's just a whole lot more of the same stuff. Kind of the Star Wars universe. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, right, far right, away right, type thing. Right. There's another way you can get a multiverse. And that is where you take all of the stuff that kind of looks like what we see and say, all right, that's, that's, a, that's a, a realm. There could be other realms where the laws of physics might look different. So the hmm. speed of light is faster, or there's only two dimensions, or there's no weak nuclear force, or, 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 or. That would be a level two multiverse. There's a level three, uh, so the, the level two multiverse, uh, you know, it's a little, not quite a movie reference, but kind of the land before, or the, the land between realms in C.S. Lewis, where you're kind of hopping between different realms. Then there's another way where anytime a quantum event happens, from a probability perspective, we can predict what it says, but some people will say the ultimate reality is that all of those options in a quantum event happen. And so it's a quantum multiverse, a many world scenario. So this is kind of the back to the future multiverse, yeah, if you will. Yeah. And then the level four is just other mathematical ways we could envision vision the a wor world being put together. And so coming back to your question of is, you know, is this science or not, the way inflation works, if inflation happened, the universe is far larger than what we can see. That's the level one multiverse. If our understanding of inflation is correct, that produces this level two multiverse. And certain versions of quantum mechanics give you that level three multiverse. Now, in that level three multiverse, you're gonna have all sorts of different versions of you and I around making. So some of them were having this conversation, others of them I just bolt and say, hey, <laughs> no, I didn't wanna do this, or anything that could be possible presumably happens in that level three multiverse. Like an evil Kirk and evil Spock. Those are the sorts of things. Yeah. Assuming they are possible, they will happen somewhere. And that's kind of one of the features of the way these multiverses are envisioned is that anything that is possible, anything that can happen, does happen somewhere because all of the different possibilities are sampled somewhere. Hmm. So there is an assumption that's built into that, that all of that is purely physical, if you will. So, so those possibilities have to exist. And so that's where I think some of the ideas of Christianity or what Christianity has to say actually makes the multiverse fit more comfortably in a Christian worldview than it does in a naturalistic worldview because you don't run into these sorts of difficulties of there's an evil axe murdering Jeff Zwerink out there. <laughs> the only Jeff Zwerink is the one that's sitting here having this conversation with you today. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's tease that out a little bit because I imagine some listeners are, are listening to this and are thinking, "Whoa, you know, this is this is crazy stuff," and, and there would be a, a temptation to be afraid of this. The mm -hmm. idea of multiverse—it sounds big and overwhelming, and and people may not see how it could cohere with what we see in Scripture in the world that they understand in that way. How would you answer those questions? Those were exactly the sort of that, that was the question I was wrestling with when I first encountered the multiverse because I thought I had thought. Well, the multiverse, that's just kind of 
scientists are talking about it, but it can all be just a single universe. So I don't really have to deal with it. And then I realized, no, you know, there's actually good reason to think a multiverse might exist. So what do I do with that? Yeah. Because does that get rid of the beginning? Does that get rid of the, the, the design or the purpose of the universe? H how do I wrestle with that? And I mean, quite honestly, if you go back and listen to about the year after where I started wrestling with this, I just didn't talk much about it mm. because I didn't know how to address mm. it. And yeah. What I found through further studies is that scientists have spent a long time trying to get rid of the beginning of the universe. Hmm. And the multiverse seemed to, at first blush, get rid of this. And inflationary Big Bang cosmology seems to get rid of the beginning. But as scientists continued to study, lo and behold, they find even in the context of inflationary cosmology, there's still a beginning to things. So it actually what seemed to be a threat to, oh, this is going to get rid of the beginning, actually made it a more robust conclusion that we live in a universe with a beginning. I find the same sort of thing with design. It shows up a little differently because really what design is saying is that what I see isn't expected. It's atypical. It's got a purpose to it. Well, when you apply that sort of reasoning to the multiverse, again, where we're living looks atypical. It looks like there's a purpose. It looks like there's a function to it. And so you end up with a beginning and, and a cosmological and a teleological argument, even in the context of a multiverse. And I find them to be more robust versions of that. So what I found that appeared to be a threat to my apologetic arguments for Christianity upon further investigation and study actually made them stronger arguments. So you're saying, in other words, that the deeper you've studied this multiverse theory, the more it confirms the idea that there is a beginning and end. A beginning and that there's a design to it, a purpose to why we're here. Hmm. So I'm not the first person to realize that, that the, the first exposure to something appears like it's a threat to Christianity, but upon deeper investigation, it's like, no, that fits in very well. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that if you want, if you value science, and if you like what science has to tell us about it, if the multiverse is true, that fits far more comfortably in a Christian worldview than it does a naturalistic worldview. Because think about it. If everything that can happen does happen somewhere in the universe, how does science actually work? Hmm. We're, in essence, just a big group of accountants at this point cataloging what are the different ways could things could happen. Because it could very well be that this podcast is a result of you know, you tripped, fell out of bed, hit your head, you're imagining things, you pick some random person off the street and we're having this podcast. That's a possible explanation for this. Now, you and I both know that's not the explanation. <laughs> but in the multiverse, I have no way to disprove that. Hmm. Because it's possible it happens somewhere. How do I know I'm not in that scenario right now? I think if if you take away the Judeo-Christian root and put the multiverse in there, it's ultimately going to undermine and destroy science. Hmm. And maybe this is a little bit outside of your expertise, but I'm curious. The idea of a multiverse really has, I feel like, gripped the pop cultural conscience right now. I mean, I, I rolled off just a list of a variety of movies that are dealing with the multiverse in science fiction. This is the stuff they talk about all the time. Why do you think that is? Why do you think now of all times, this concept of the multiverse is um, a key part of our pop cultural conscience? That's a really good question. And I, I'm i going to speculate. I, sure. I, yeah, that's all I'm asking you to do. Ideas yeah. to have and think about here. Because when I first started uh, 
d trying to come up with talks on the multiverse. I did what any good person does, go types into Google, what is the multiverse? Just to see what it yeah. would get. And one of my favorite responses is I saw this uh, cartoon of a, of a dad and a daughter sitting on the bed and they're reading books and the daughter turns to the dad and the, she goes, dad, what's the multiverse? And the dad's response was, why it's a plot device for lazy writers. <laughs> The reason I like it is because you look at a lot of movies and if this world is all there is, we are constrained in the types of solutions we can get. The multiverse allows us to explore things that don't make us deal with hard questions. Hmm. Not too long after I found that, I watched the movie Source Code and I'm like, they're using the multiverse. This guy, we want him to survive, but either, yeah, there, there's an either or if this world is all there is, but the multiverse allowed them to explore a realm that isn't possible in here. And I, and I kind of wonder if that's what's going on is that we see, we know a lot about how this world works. It's a huge, incredible, enormous world, but there are some very hard constraints on the way life works. And the multiverse allows us to explore realms where we are not necessarily forced to confront some of the difficult challenges that this life ultimately brings. And so just given that our knowledge of the universe has expanded and the constraints we know of what there is and what there isn't and what can be and what can't be, the multiverse is kind of the place where we can still go explore beyond what and, and kind of explore that fantasy realm and enjoy being out in there. Mm. Kind of the next realm of science fiction for a long time. Science fiction, you know, the idea of uh, I think of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy. You know, he goes to Mars and Venus, right? And imagine what the world would have been like. Well, now we know what Mars and Venus are like, and it's not quite like that, right? And so, almost like uh, it's the next terrain in science fiction, this unexplored territory, perhaps, maybe. I wonder if that is it. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I love about science that is very countercultural today is that when you go out and you explore and you test, these are the measurements, these are the observations, I don't get to come in and say, well, that's not the way I want it to be. I'm gonna adjust it and make it this way. If I'm doing my science well, it's like, these are the data, I have to conform my view to what the data says. The multiverse gives us a place where we can still go out and explore and mm. have things be however we want because we've got a lot of good information about how this universe works out to great distances. And so maybe it is just kind of the natural place to go out and explore that realm beyond what we can do. And as my understanding, I, I mean, I love science fiction and fantasy type stuff and thinking about what can be because it removes me from the constraints of how this world actually works. Hmm. Uh, I imagine some of your conversations about the multiverse have piqued our listeners' interest. Where would you recommend they go to learn more about, if, if they're interested and want to learn more about the multiverse, where would you recommend they go? You know, you mentioned my book, Who's Afraid of the Multiverse. I think that's a great place to start. You know, what I'm trying to do there is to help people see the scientific motivation or the basis for why people think the multiverse exists, but also wrestling with as a Christian, how do we think about this? There's a lot of assumptions and philosophy in there that I think is important to deal with. And hopefully that book will equip you to be able to talk with it. But you can go to reasons.org, the book sold there. There's also a numerous articles that show up there kind of every now and again, somebody will claim we found evidence for the multiverse. And so I'll write stuff or talk about things that address that. But reasons.org is a great place to get a lot of resources on the multiverse. And we can put both of those things in our show notes today. Dr. Zwering, this season, we're focusing on spiritual formation, human formation, all, all types of formation. How can these thoughts about the multiverse shape or form us in our understanding of God and of the universe? 
I have personally found two things happen as I've explored the multiverse. One is that as I explore the multiverse, and similar to exploring, is there life in the universe? Is there a beginning? These sorts of things that very often I tend to have God in too small of a box. Hmm. My picture of God is too small. And as I wrestle with these things, I am forced to come up with a better theology, a more complete, a bigger picture of who God is. And I think that's important because I want to make God understandable. And very often he comes along and says, there's a lot of things you can understand about me, but I am bigger than what you can conceive of. So I think that's part of the formation. The other part that I have found is I've looked at enough of these topics where if I'm honest, I have a little anxiety or, oh, maybe this is the one that shows that Christianity is not right. Mm -hmm. The more I've had real questions about that, where I see this could go either way. And as I dig in and realize, wait a second, Christianity is very robust. What the Bible says and what science says and how Christians have thought about this, there is a robustness and a soundness. I become more and more convinced of the truth of Christianity. And that just gives me a foundation to when things come up that are challenging, I'm like, no, Christianity really does make the best sense of things, not just intellectually, day-to-day -day life of how I've encountered and experienced God. And so it gives me a far greater confidence that God is who he says he is and that he's worthy of my trust. Wow. So in other words, studying the multiverse has made you love God more is in a way. It, it really has. Yes. Yeah. I, that, that's not an overstatement or yeah. a ooh, nice inspirational thing. As I've studied the multiverse, I'm like, yeah, God is who he says he is and he's worthy of my trust. Now, getting me to live that way day in and day out is a continual struggle, but I am more and more convinced that he's worthy of that. And I have, and I'm lurking to learn how to invest more and more trust in him. Dr. Zwering, this has been a fascinating conversation. And, um, and I, I imagine we're just kind of scratching the surface of, of this whole thing. So we'll have to one day have you back on and talk more about these things. How can people follow you, your work? And you've already mentioned a couple things, but also find your books. Reasons.org is a great place to go look for that. Very often books show up on uh, Amazon as well, but you can also, I'm on social media. I tend to not post a lot, but I do try and interact with the people who want to engage with me there. So feel free to send me a message and we can interact there. I love talking about things. Don't really like debating things, but I love having in-depth discussions, whether we disagree or not. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really enjoyed. Thanks for the invitation. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. And today we'll have with us Dr. David Jones. So, Dr. Jones, what's on your bookshelf right now? I've been reading a great uh, biography. Um, it's a biography of Matthew Henry. Uh, and the title of the book is Matthew Henry, His Life and Influence by Alan Hartman. Matthew Henry is a name that probably many of the listeners know. Uh, he wrote probably one of the best-selling commentaries of all time, uh, about a 400-year-old commentary uh, that I use myself uh, even as I prepare uh, to preach and teach Scripture. And so it occurred to me, you know, I, I know very little uh, about the man. Uh, and so I bought this biography. Again, it's uh, Matthew Henry, uh, His Life and Influence by Alan Harmon. Uh, and just a great read uh, that kind of gives you the background behind the man who wrote that commentary that so many of us uh, are familiar with. 
Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a review at Apple Podcast, and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.